Welcome to our C3 Grow podcast. Wherever you are today, we hope that this message encourages you. We'd love to see you in person at one of our three locations, Howick, Ormiston, and Suva. Visit c3grow.org for details. Over the last couple of weeks, um, the last month or so, we have been working our way through a section of scripture in the book of Ephesians um, as part of our theme, The New Life. What does it mean to follow in the footsteps of Christ on our journey as believers? What does this new life that we are being called up into look like? And today's topic, why is sexual purity so important to God? I bet you're glad you came to church today. I bet you're glad. Um, today's, <laughs> oh man. Um, today's text is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 6. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to there. Um, so that's Ephesians, 5, chap- Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 6. Um, but for the sake of context, this morning we're going to begin our reading from verse 1. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Um, and here, here it goes. Follow God's example. This is verse 1. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 3. And this is the bit that we're going to be focusing on. But among you there must, be, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. No, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. But rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one, deserve, no one deceive you sorry, with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Here we are. <laughs> All right. In the book of Ephesians, previously and continuing through, the Apostle Paul highlights a call or a principle that he would like the believers in Ephesus or in the church to really take heed of and pay attention to. He then goes on to describe what those principles would look like or should look like in a believer as well as an antidote to an issue they or we might have. Here in this particular one, in these six verses, here he follows up the consequences of our actions based on the issue. In this book, Paul describes what manner of life is appropriate and inappropriate for the believer in regards to sexuality. In this, like I said, in this chapter, the sin of sexual immorality and its dangers to the believers and to the church. Now, we need to understand before we dive, dive deeper into this, that this is not a checklist to get saved. We are not being set up to be more religious or have an increased burden of being good. We are not trying to earn our way into heaven. Now, I need to say that at the start. Okay? This is not an addition and this is not a checklist for you. If you do these things, you shall be saved. A few chapters before in Ephesians 2 verse 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and, it, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God. 
Paul is reminding and teaching us that these are practices for a believer, for the benefit of the church and for its people and for the believer themselves. More importantly, these actions are a form of worship and communicate to the world the nature of God. Okay. Last week, Pastor Steve spoke about the behavior of children and how they reflect their parents. They bring honor or dishonor to their parents' name when they act and how they act. Respect, kindness, kindness, and diligence. Similarly here, these calls to action are reflection of the nature of God. But also, quite more deeply and intimately, it reflects also who we are in relation to him. Paul is saying to the church, this is how you live out a life worthy of the call that God has given to you. That is, you are called children, dearly loved children. You now belong to a new family. These are the principles of the family, and this is how we behave so that the Father is honored and glorified through us. Okay, I needed to say that at the start. Okay, this is not a way uh, for us to get saved. Um, it is, however, after we're saved that we behave in a certain type of way. Um, this is, so I'll read verse 1 and 2 again just to, just to drive that bit home again. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. That's your new um, identity. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Um, also, please listen, listen to Pastor Steve's message on this from last Sunday. He covers these two verses extremely well. Um, and he unpacks the verses and their importance to our life following Christ. These two verses are crucial to our understanding and set us up for the next four verses. It is from the context of these two that the rest of our text this morning will be viewed and understood. But anyway, to sum up verse 1, mimic your father, follow his example. Um, after the initial excitement and joy of discovering Kara and I were going to be parents, I slowly began over the years, over, sorry, over the months, years, over the months, um, I felt a great responsibility that a human being will now look to me as his guide. Scary thought to how to operate and behave in the world. Every action, every thought I had suddenly felt under a microscope. This all felt a little bit too much. But Paul writes, copy me as I copy him. For my son to grow up, just so he's here somewhere. For my son to grow up with the heart after God. I need to have a heart after God myself. This is where he will learn. Similarly, to mimic Christ or imitate Christ, we need to follow him closely. We can only repli replicate and reproduce what we know intimately. Otherwise, we'll get it wrong or we'll lean on our own strength and our own knowledge. We imitate or we copy or we mimic the best when we know the heart and reason behind the action and its behavior. It's not enough to know what to do and when to do it. You might be able to get away with that for a while with raw willpower and discipline. However, you need to be, we need to be aware of this. This is merely religion and not a characteristic of a child, but of a servant. So if we follow for the sake of following and not out of a place of love, we become merely a servant and we're not called to be servants as children of God our calling is to know him and as a consequence know his heart 
and it is from this intimate relationship that we follow in his footsteps and action. Spurgeon, great theologian, wrote, It has been said by, some, by someone that the pro proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea. But I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect, that's us, is God. The proper, the proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. This is the greatest, highest honor we could strive for. To know God and imitate him. And how do we do this? What does this look like? Walk in the way of love. This is verse 2. Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now this is where we're going to go a little bit deep this morning. Walk in love. The word love here is the Greek word agape. Now, I'm pretty sure if you've been around Christians and in church long enough, you would have heard this word a lot of times. I'm pretty sure there's a brand also. Um, and unlike the, unlike the English language, where the word love in English can be used to rep uh, represent a wide range of emotions, all the way from deep affection for a loved one, um, all the way to simple pleasures and everything in between. I mean, we all know I'm loving it, right? Uh, McDonald's. So it's used in the English language to represent a whole um, list of feelings of affection. However, in the Greek, agape is the highest form of love, charity, and the love of and and the love of God for man and man for God. It embraces, this is agape, it embraces a deep and profound sacrificial love that transcends and persists regardless of circumstance. And it is wholly sacrificial and selfless in its nature. It seeks the best, the very best for a person even at the expense of the one who is giving the love. So I'll read that bit again. Agape love, it seeks the best for a person, even at the expense of the one who is giving that love. There are many examples of this type of love that we've heard of, maybe acts of heroism, mother sacrifice, among others. But the example that immediately stands out is Christ's love for us. A sacrificial Deep, unmoving love. Agape love. A love that led him to the cross. Now, no pressure. No pressure. This is the love we are called to. To walk or live out our calling with a sacrifice and benevolence for Christ and for people. This agape love comes at an expense. And usually... That expenses to ourselves. Just like it did for Christ. To live lives that are worthy of our call. But also to worship God like a fragrant offering and sacrifice. This is our call as believers and children. To mimic, to imitate, to live lives worthy and to love. Just like Christ did. Now, that is the basis. We'll be talking about love over the next couple of um, bits. That is the basis of what love is. Now, we're going to figure out where does sex fit into all of this. 
I feel weird saying it up, saying it up here. But anyway, it's, we're in church. We're in church. Um, anyway, chapter 5, verse 3. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Okay. The Greek word for sexuality here is called porneia. Now, it might sound a little bit familiar because that's where the word porn is, comes from. Um, and in the Greek, porneia is any type of deviation from sexual intimacy inside a marriage between a man and a woman. So anything outside of that is in the Greek called porneia. It is the filling of one's sexual desires outside the loving, God-ordained relationship between a man and a woman now that's the first part the next bit of that is the impurity part impurity here in this here is everything else that isn't covered by porneia it is the corruption of the moral sense usually um, can be summed up or some words that would i guess describe impurity here would be lust um, and selfishness okay um, greed can also be read here as covetedness, and it's to have a selfish appetite for more, whether that be sexual or for objects or money or whatever that may be. Yeah, pretty intense picture, eh? Um, and Paul is quite, can Paul is specific in naming these sins for us to stay away, away from? There shouldn't be even a hint of these. Ooh, that stuff. <laughs> um, and if we're honest, yeah, let's, not talk, let's not go there, right? Um, when, living, when living a life that is called to be pure and blameless, what we sometimes uh, may be tempted to do is to see how far, especially when it comes to porneia, that is sexual intimacy outside the confinements of marriage, what we sometimes are tempted to do and sometimes tempted to do is that we might see how far we can toe the line without crossing it. How much can we get away with before we consider ourselves to have sinned? How close can we go? Paul says, and this is why he includes impurity and covetedness when he lists these, um, um, when he lists these sins. Is Paul says, if you're a child of God and are called to the his near of life, fulfillment sexually outside the confines of marriage is a sin. But not only that, but the lusting after or coveting of objects or people is a sin too. In Matthew 5, 27, it says, You have heard this said before, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, cool. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, or in this case, a man lustfully, has already committed adultery with her or him in his heart. Jesus redefines where the line is. It's not only the act that makes us sinful. The deep thoughts and desires are where sin begins. The line cuts right through your heart and mine. Paul has outlined what it means to live as believers, children of God. What our calling looks like. This is our calling. Be pure in heart and as a consequence in action and in deed. Now, this is countercultural. Not only then, but now. Sacrificial and pure love, or agape as the word that we've just learnt, is all, almost seems nowadays 
And it would have seemed the very same back then as well, because humanity hasn't really changed. We still have the same desires, wants, and sin. Sacrificial and pure love, agape love, can almost be seen ridiculous to aspire, to aspire to. And just like Ephesus, just like today, selfish love, lust, is not only commonplace, but can be celebrated and encouraged. This type of love, worldly love I might say, um, appeals to the selfish nature of our flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity and greed are all self-indulgent, counterfeit forms of a love of, of love that occupy themselves primarily with the pursuit, gratification, and satisfaction of our own selfish desires. It seeks to exploit others and its surroundings for the fulfillment of our own desires. A direct contrast to the call for which we have been given as children of God. To love with agape love. Selfless, sacrificial, holy, pure love. One of the lies that we might, may tell ourselves is the breaking the institution of marriage or to live a life where fulfillment or by any means for any of our desires and needs are the only thing that matters. We think that that is freedom. Do not be fooled. With this type of love that is counterfeit, selfish, the flesh is the idol and our sin is the master. The thing to which we worship when we indulge ourselves outside of God's call for purity. We do so at the expense of others because that's usually what it's selfish. It does not seek the best for others, rather what it can take from other people or other things. We do so at the expense of others, but also simultaneously, we do it at the expense of our own souls. As children of God, our ethics and our call is much higher to imitate Christ, to lay aside our selfish desires, not to become holy, but because we are called to be holy. I'll say that bit again. Our ethics and our call is much higher to imitate Christ, to lay aside our selfish desires and ambition, not to become holy, but because you and I are called to be holy. Again, I must reiterate, we are not trying to earn an identity here. Rather, we are acting out our new identity and calling by this new ethic. Now, these seem like a big issue here. However, Paul isn't done with his outlining of the behavior of a believer. I've got to get a move on. Verse number four. Nor should, the, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but that one hit me hard. Um, and, I'll, and I'll go through the reasons why. Don't let filthy speech, dirty language, idiotic speech be found in us, or in you, or in myself. Please take note, by the way, this is not a command against humor and laughter and joy. 
Rather, it is, a, it is against crass and foolish humor. Now, why would Paul have an issue with dirty jokes or foolish humor? Right? He's already gone through the bits before about lust, um, sexual morality, covetousness. C.S. Lewis, um, this is a really cool book, by the way, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Um, the book is a series of letters from Screwtape, um, and really experienced, it's from the perspective of an experienced devil, instructing his young charge, Wormwood, on the effective strategies for tempting the human being. And this is what it says. There's a, there's a bit in the book that says, humor is for them, that is talking about humanity, humor is for them the all-consoling, and mark this, the all-excusing grace of life. Hence, it is invaluable as a means of destroying shame. I'll, I'll read that bit again. Hence, it is invaluable as a means of destroying shame. And he goes on to give a couple of examples. If a man simply lets others pay for him, he is seen as cheap. If he boasts of it in a joyous manner and twits his fellows with having been scored off of them, he is no longer mean, but he is a comical fellow. Excuse the way I'm reading. This is really all English. He also goes on to say, mere cowardice or being a coward is shameful. Cowardice boasted of with humorous exaggerations and grotesque gestures can be passed off as funny. Cruelty is shameful unless the cruel man can be represented or can represent it as a practical joke. Crude humor reveals the state of the heart and turns the sacred into something ordinary. It removes the shame or holiness around an idea or principle. In this case, the holiness and sanctity around sex and marriage. The intimacy of sex and love is sacred to God. We know this from Jesus himself. He uses the metaphor of the bride and the groom to represent the relationship between Christ and the church. Okay? He could have used a lot of other metaphors or other examples. He chose to go with the bride and the groom to represent the church, joining in or finally coming together with Christ the groom. He takes this seriously. This is to be taken with an air of respect and awe. As believers, we should not be making light of the sacred for the sake of cheap laughs. Doing so diminishes our own views of marriage and of sex. It cheapens it. Our calling is to be holy, but also to regard and speak about the sacred things in a way that is worthy of our calling as children of God. Now, the second part of, the, of that verse is quite interesting, right? Because it goes, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. And then he gives us, but rather thanksgiving. A seemingly strange um, option to, I guess, filthy jokes, thanksgiving. He says we should be filled with thanksgiving. His call is for us to be grateful. This is the antidote to coveting. Well, the antidote, sorry, to coveting is thanksgiving. Okay, this is profoundly 
This is profound, sorry, in its simplicity. And I'll go on and I'll go on to the reason why. Now, with a car or a home or a phone or a job or even a partner or any other material things, we usually want to get we usually want to get a new one when we begin to notice all the things that are wrong with the ones that we already have. Isn't that true? Yeah? It's usually the, the time that we really want something new is usually when we start looking at the things. Oh, that looks flash. And then we start to notice the things that we have don't quite come up to it. Right? My car has A, B, C, D. Wrong with it. The left window doesn't go up. The brake light's always on. So and so, right? My phone doesn't do this thing or that thing. It's got only two cameras on the front instead of three. My job has this thing's wrong with it. I don't like to be with this certain person. I want a new one. My partner, A, B, or C, they don't do this, that, or the other. Never pick up the undies, whatever it may be, right? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying by, by chance, don't buy a new car or a new phone or get a new job. No, I'm highlighting that it is when we lose our contentment for something that we begin to look for fulfillment somewhere else. Okay, I'll read that bit again. I'm highlighting that it is when we lose our contentment for something that we begin to look for our fulfillment somewhere else. Now, I'll go back to, I'll read that verse again. There should be no obscenity, foolish talk, or cause joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Gratefulness. In the context of sex and marriage, the antidote here is gratefulness. Gratefulness breeds contentment. What I have is more than enough. I have all that I need, and I am thankful. If I am content and happy with what I have, I do not notice what I appear to lack. Amen. Gratefulness breeds contentment. Having a mind, a mouth, and a heart that constantly gives thanks puts us in a place of contentment and gratitude for what we have. And we are less likely to be looking for something to fulfill us elsewhere. Because we have all that we need. And we know it. This is our daily call. To constantly look for the things we are grateful for. Lest we begin to look elsewhere for fulfillment. And the best place to start... We can start with our gratefulness and thanksgiving with Jesus Christ our Lord. Perfect and blameless, coming to pay the sin we deserved. Beaten and hung on a cruel cross by the very people he came to save, you and I. What a God we serve. Then from here, or from there, thankfulness for all our other blessings easily pour forth. And finally, in verses 5 and 6, a warning. This is verse 5. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Very, very strong words. 
The sign of a believer, of one that is called to be a child of God, is purity. If these things are found in you, much like a uniform, they are the signs that you are, that you are God's child. However, if you live willingly in, in immor immorality, impurity, and covetedness, then these are actually the symptoms of sin. If you choose to continue to live like this, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Scary. Do not be deceived by anybody that tells you otherwise. It is human sinful nature to listen and believe the words of those who confirm our natural human desires. We want to believe that the indulgence, indulgence sorry, of the flesh and desire for our, our own enjoyment is the expression of freedom. And like I said before, this is foolishness to not be fooled. That is a lie that has tickled and tricked the hearts and minds of many. Do not fall for it. To do so would be extremely detrimental to your soul and to your life on earth. Let's be clear. Immorality, impurity, and covetousness are human nature and can be found in all of us. I'm not scot-free. Neither are you. The presence of sin is in us. And it's a fight that we take up every day. However, it is the putting to death of these desires daily as we walk intimately with God and imitate Him where we find ourselves growing in Him. And the first two chapters, sorry, the first two verses of chapter 5 ring true here. Follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now let's return back to the question. Why is sexual purity so important to a believer? And without talking about us being the bride of Christ, from this particular verse, from the beginning, we are the children of God. And he takes this stuff seriously. And if we can put aside our desires and every day seek to follow Him intimately and as we grow in Him, we begin to imitate Him more and more. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has blessed you. For more information about our church, you can find us online at seafreegrow.org.